Hey kids, Mandy here, and I wanted to personally invite you to join me for Cincinnati Song Initiative's first ever Fellowship of the Song, happening May 20th through 25th. In addition to a week full of amazing concerts, song workshops, and classes, I'll be leading some seriously fun study events on heartwarming topics such as murder ballads and exploring death through music and poetry. Should be a great time! (laughs) You can participate as an auditor, whether you come to Cincinnati in person or join remotely from your comfiest couch. And the best part is that all the week's events will be recorded for unlimited viewing through June 26th. So, what are you waiting for? Head to cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash audit to learn more about this groundbreaking new program for song. And I hope to see you in person or online. This episode of Follow the Leader discusses the atrocities of the Holocaust. Please take care while listening. And welcome to Follow the Leader with me, your host, Mandy Madrid Sikich. If you are a fan of the podcast, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. And remember, if you like what we are doing on the podcast, tell your friends. And if you don't, then tell your enemies, because as I like to say, any publicity is good publicity. are joined by my dear friend Camilla Store. Camilla, you're Hi, here. Hi, Mandy. <laughs> I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, I'm happy us. to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, okay, so my name is Camilla Store. I am. A, I was born in Czechoslovakia, and I moved to the United States in the 90s with my American-born husband, and have lived. Uh, here ever since San Francisco now in Santa Barbara for 20 plus years um I have two kids in college now so empty nester figuring out what's next for me um I have done many things in my life career-wise I was I studied English in Prague I was an au pair in London I was a translator and interpreter in Prague then I worked in publishing and then I raised the kids and did some freelance editing and proofreading. And I also sold yarn because I'm a knitter. Uh, I love to read. I love to hang out with interesting people. I like to bake. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. And cook. And My stomach thanks that's you. That's <laughs> right. And, and, you know, the older I get, I find that uh, meaningful relationships really are the thing. And I love music as well. And, yeah, I've Nothing super adrenaline driven in my life, but uh, but you know, <laughs> other than this podcast, other this than morning. this podcast, yeah, yeah. So, and we met through piano lessons. We did meet through piano lessons, which I sadly have you know put on ice a little bit. But uh, but the other day I did pull out the Bach, like I texted right. you because right, it was his, his birthday. birthday, and I did like you know hence separately an invention, and yeah. it wasn't terrible. So oh, good, you know. good, great success. So we'll see. Maybe I'll talk you into giving me lessons again at some point. So. That's roughly uh, roughly it for now. Thank you. Yeah. And actually, I didn't know that you sold yarn. That was interesting. Oh, did you not know? No. Oh, cardigans. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. For a few years. Yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Um, I still do need you to like 
uh, impart your knitting oh, right. wisdom right, 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 to me. Right. I have a whole bag of. I think I got the wrong yarn to start with. Was my problem? Oh, my right. yarn's too little. Okay. I think I need like a fatter yarn okay. to start with. Okay. So maybe maybe you can come over. We'll do another podcast That's another right. day and do some knitting. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> we'll we start can, a knitting we, podcast. I literally, I was gonna just say that. <laughs> How would that work though? Like, it oh, would have to oh, be there a are video so many. podcast. Yes, but there are there are audio too. Really? Yeah, oh, so many. Oh my god. Oh well, yes. Okay, I think I think I feel a new project coming on. <laughs> okay, so um, today's podcast is a bit different than the norm simply because the topic is a bit heavier. And um, I just kind of wanted to throw this out there that um, this story, oof, I really immersed myself um, in this story um, as I was doing research for this podcast. And uh, there were times I really had to kind of step away and take a break because it was so heavy. So I know I promised you, oh, it's gonna be so much fun. I'm gonna tell you all about <laughs> Sa Weber, which I am. And there are wonderful, fantastical things about her. And, and I'm so excited to share her story. Um, but it, it is also a heavier podcast. So let me know if you ever need a break. Okay. <laughs> um, but also I did try to um, distill this down in a way that uh, I think is a little bit more manageable. So while it does get heavy, I, I try not to dwell too much in the darkness. Right. Because um, we are talking about her entire life today. And uh, as we know, I am famous for writing book reports longer than the books themselves. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I've tried my best to distill down the most important parts that I want to convey to you and to the audience. And uh, I do have a great book that I recommend. It's called Dancing on a Powder Keg. Hmm. This book contains her letters and it also has a forward and afterward um, by Ulrika Migdal, and then also an essay on Theresienstadt oh, by wow. Ruth Bondi. I just went there this summer for the first time. Mm -hmm. Oh, my. Okay, so you're actually going to be able to fill us in on some little bits and pieces mm -hmm. here. Um, so anyway, I highly recommend this book. Um, I really felt like I got to know Ilsa Weber um, quite intimately through reading her letters. And uh, I'm just, I'm so excited. So, mm -hmm. so let's get into okay. it. This good. Yeah, a long one, because I have a lot, a lot of stories. <laughs> in fact, my best friend's mom was in Terezin as oh, a okay. child. Yeah. Um, so, but um, toward the end of the war, because only her father was Jewish. So she was oh, one of the last sort of groups to be hauled away. And she, mm -hmm. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. fantastic. And I was also going to say at any point along the way, since you speak Czech mm. and so Ilsa's uh, mother tongue, she considered to be German and she mm. wasn't quite as fluent in Czech, but because of where she lived, like mm -hmm. there's two names for a lot of places. Okay. Okay. And so if I ever do attempt the Czech. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, how do you I say? Will, I will gently correct yes, you. Yes, um, How do you say um, the S with the little... Um, Sh. Sh. Okay, so Hanush. Yes. 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 Okay. Exactly great. right. Yes. Yes. Uh, my gut instinct yeah. was correct. Same for C. It's Ch. Ch. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So... I think, I think I might have pronounced these things right, but do jump in if well, at any point in time I do. Thank you. <laughs> in 1977, a man named Hanush Weber received a trunk delivered by an old family friend. Hanush knew that the contents of this trunk would fill in missing pieces of his young life but he also knew that it would bring an emotional devastation that he'd spent most of his life trying to process. You see, in this trunk were letters written by his mother, Ilse Weber, 
a 41-year-old woman who was killed in the Auschwitz gas chambers in 1944, along with her second son, Hanush's younger brother, Tommy. Ilsa was born in 1903 in Witkowitz, or do you know the... Um, Witkowitze. Witkowitze, that's how you say it in Czech. We'll see how I'm able to incorporate that. Correct me if I, <laughs> if I need it. So uh, Witkowice, uh, at the time that she was born, was a border town in the regions of what was then Bohemia and Moravia. Mm-hmm. At present, the town is now a district of Ostrava, Ostrava. Mm-hmm. named after the Ostra River mm-hmm. that divides the city into two parts. Presently, other than Prague, it is the largest urban area in what is now the Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. So many different people groups, Czech, Polish, German, Jewish, all lived in close proximity to each other and in relative harmony compared with what was to come in the 30s and 40s. It was said that these different people groups lived more next to each other than with each other. Mm -hmm. So this cultural background is very important to keep in mind as we learn about, about Ilse's story. In Ilse's world, there was a deep connection between the Jewish people and the German culture. Many of the German cultural elements in Witkowice and many other places like it would not have existed without the Jewish people's involvement. Uh, do you have anything you want to add on the... Um, no, not, not just yet. It's Ostrava is a big city. It's very industrial. Mm-hmm. The people are very gritty because mm-hmm. it's in the north of Moravia, mm-hmm. whereas the sub- south is very bucolic and one country and like very mellow. So, so there's uh, coal mines and right. factories and it's very close to Poland as well. Right. So... Yeah, in my reading, actually, I had read that um, a lot of the coal mining, um, there was a company that came in and really developed it mm-hmm. into the industrial mm-hmm. center mm-hmm. that it is. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that uh, were involved in that company were Jewish. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just heard it actually when I was there this summer, a, a very interesting novel that takes place. It's a trilogy. Mm-hmm about this place when it was it starts in like 1890 or 1890 something Mm. uh with a mining uh disaster and then it's it's like a family saga and it and it you basically learn about the coexistence of the polish and czech and so forth and not so many jewish people that comes later i think as the war starts but it but it was fascinating because we we were not really taught in school this history all that much so it's very it was it's a very hugely popular uh award-winning novel oh interesting is it uh in english not yet not yet okay well that's if it ever will be maybe i should translate it. yeah maybe you should (laughs) (laughs) i would read it it sounds really interesting um so ilsa attended a german girls school and grew up speaking german which she considered to be her mother tongue she also spoke czech she was very good with languages and would often be asked to tutor students (laughs) When asked if she could teach English, she said yes, even though she didn't speak any English. So she simply got the textbook and would master each lesson before then teaching it to her pupil. And she was quite remarkable in that way. Um, She learned guitar the same way. So someone asked her if she could teach guitar and she got a guitar, got a book, mastered each lesson and then would go. (laughs) But that's funny you should say that because this is exactly kind of what that's that's how I met my husband because he was not a qualified teacher, but Mm -hmm. he went there to teach English in the early 90s because literally we all had to take Russian. And then after 89, after the regime, change every well so we all dropped russian we were allowed right everybody wanted to learn english English. but all the russian teachers 
literally were one lesson ahead of the students and oh were God. like fumbling through. Oh, that's yeah. so interesting. Was, literally, that was the situation. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, she was quite the go-getter. And she was also a voracious reader. She especially loved to read fairy tales. And eventually her personal library became so large that it outgrew her family's bookcase. So she would stuff books in other less practical locations like the linen cupboard yeah. or her grandfather's glass display case. <laughs> I see that. She religiously read a weekly periodical called the Kränzchen, which was an illustrated magazine for girls. Um, a questionnaire that she filled out in the periodical when she was 16 years old, it was later recovered. Um, and I just thought I would read you a little bit because it's, it's so sweet. It gives you a little insight to what, what young Ilsa was like. So you know, like in, the, in magazines, how they'll be like, little surveys or right, questionnaires right, or things right. like what, what personality your right. personality is right. like this kind of car or whatever right. so it's like this is like the the old-timey version of that so um motto and this is what she put who trusts in god has a strong abode highest wish to be able to write poetry and unity in the family hmm. favorite poets writers or composers schiller paul keller and now i like this schubert <laughs> and heine <laughs> Favorite flowers, violet and myrtle. Favorite dish, bread and butter or bread with goose liver and hashed oh, gooseneck. <laughs> Is that a thing? <laughs> oh, yes. Because <laughs> I read that and was like, That's Ugh. a thing. Oh, my gosh. Duck liver, goose liver, yum. Oh, wow. Oh, all the goose fat, even yum. Oh, uh, my mouth is watering now. <laughs> um, her passion was children. Hmm. Her big antipathy was against falsehood and liars. Favorite book, Das Letzte Märchen by Paul Keller. I don't know who Paul Keller is. Um, you know, I I feel like that name rings a bell, but Keller's a pretty um like common last name. It is, name, but he's so. thrown in there with all the other big names. That yeah, I, yeah. You know, so, interesting. No, I don't really know anything hmm. about him. Uh, her favorite colors were blue, white, and red. Her favorite drink, water. <laughs> her favorite occupations, to write letters, stories, and poems. Oh. It's so sweet. Mm-hmm. So it was through this Krenzchen periodical that she put out an ad seeking a pen pal and met a young Swedish girl named Lillian von Leuvenadler. The two became lifelong pen pals, best friends, and ultimately Lillian would end up saving the life of Ilsa's oldest son, Hanush. Everything that I read about Ilsa just showed her to be so energetic and vivacious. She was entrepreneurial, filled with ideas. She was kind and generous. It seems that she just lived each second just bursting at the seams with energy. Her brother recounted how at the age of 14, she fostered a newborn baby after its mother died in childbirth. She had just finished, much like with the languages, she had just finished a childcare course, and she promised the newly widowed father that she could care for the baby until he returned a year later. When he returned for the child, he thanked her profusely and also gave her a balalaika to show her his oh gratitude. Which, as, you, as you do. Right. <laughs> just here's a balalaika. <laughs> and then she learned to, she learned to play of it. Of course she did. Yeah. Cute. Ilsa began writing poems and stories for the Krenzchen periodical. She also worked translating Czech poems into German and German <laughs> poems and songs into Czech. Hmm. Through her mother, she was very familiar with Jewish religious life, and it was through this exposure that she was eventually led to write the work for which she began to make a name for herself, Jewish children's tales. 
The book was praised for being a collection of wonderfully simple stories with a crystal clear lyricism. The Jewish Press Central Zurich said that by putting this book in Jewish children's hands, you would be giving your child a key to his or herself and that it would assist in the growth and inner peace of character. Ilsa continued writing and teaching, and by the time she was 26, she had published three successful children's books and had moved into the world of radio, where she wrote and produced audio plays, work that she would devote herself to until Hitler's regime made it impossible for her to continue. So also around this time, her mother began asking her about plans to marry. <laughs> what, what, I, sorry, do, do we know what year did, I, did you say? Yeah, so she was, she born? was born in 1903. Oh, three, and okay, so okay. I think around in her late 20s okay. was when, right. you know, right. she her mother was like, hey, yeah, yeah. we are right, right, married, right, right? Right, right, right? And I believe that they got married at the eight, that she was 27, because I think they married in 1930. Okay. Um, that math adds up. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Last time Georgia was asking me to do arithmetics on the podcast, and I was like, listen, <laughs> there'll be no math happening today. That's yet another podcast. <laughs> when I start my math podcast, then we can do math, okay? Um, 287. Okay, so... This was uh, this is uh, how her brother Oscar recounted how she told her mother she was going to marry. So uh, he describes the mother-daughter dialogue on the day Ilsa announced she had decided to marry. Who is it, lawyer A or Doctor B? The mother asked. Neither the one nor the other. I will marry Willy Weber. Whereupon the mother's answer followed promptly. Does Willy Weber know about this? <laughs> Ilsa answered, actually, no, but I will tell him. It's a promise. She kept her promise, and the groom-to-be had no objections to the plan, and the wedding took place in 1930. <laughs> Sweet. It's like, when she set her mind yeah, to something, yeah, yeah. it was going yeah, to happen. Formidable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ilsa and Willy knew each other from childhood. He had trained as a farmer and gardener in hopes of one day being able to move to Palestine to help with the development there. And actually, he did move there for some time and was able to use um, his skills, but eventually came back um, to Witkowice. Witkowice. Um, so after they married, uh, because I guess gardening wasn't super lucrative <laughs> in Ostrava, <laughs> um, after they married, he opened a collection agency, which did very well until the German occupation. Uh, Ilsa and Willi welcomed their first son, Hanush, about a year after they married, and then their second son, Tommy, in 1934. So I want to talk a little bit about um, Ilsa's uh, collection of letters that we mentioned at the top of the podcast. The reason we know so much about her intimate thoughts and reactions to what was happening in the world around her is because of these letters. So... Um, I mean, I'm sure she wrote many, many more than we have. This is just the little bit that was, f that was found. Um, so th this collection of letters begins shortly after Hitler became chancellor in 1933, and then the last postcard was dated June of 1944. Most of them are addressed to Lillian, her best friend, that pen pal that she met through the periodical. Some are addressed to Hanush himself, for reasons that we'll see later, and a number of them are addressed to Lillian's mother, Gertrude Leuvenadler, which we'll also get into um, why many of them were addressed to Gertrude. In the letters, again, we see the threads of her kind and generous character gleaming, this time in an even more personal way. 
When Lillian was at odds with her mother, she encouraged her to at least attempt to heal the rift between mother and child, even if they could not understand each other. When she heard of an acquaintance whose children had to share one pair of shoes, she wanted to help. And in order to spare the mother her dignity, she told the mother that she had a nephew for whom she was keeping some things, but that the nephew was too fat. <laughs> so she gave shoes and suits and socks and even a little wagon. Other examples of her generosity and awareness for those around her are not lacking. Throughout the letters, she wrote about the complexities of her identity and how she felt it difficult to define. When Hanush asked what kind of Jews they were, she wrote about it in this conversation to Lillian. She writes that Hanush said, Muti, are we German or Czech? She replied, this is pretty much the worst question he can ask me. I am raised as German, but since the overthrow in Germany, am no longer, quote, German. So I said, diplomatically, we are Jews. Hanush, yes, but... What kind of Jews, Czech or German? Since first I speak insufficient Czech and second do not want to lie to myself, we are Czechoslovakian <laughs> Jews. He is dissatisfied with this answer, but for the time being cannot argue. Now help me, what should I tell him? He is going to Czech school and speaks flawless Czech better than Vili or I. I love the Czechs, but still cannot say I am Czech when I attended a German school and write in German. But this child reflects about it and disagrees with the answer that he is Jewish. I cannot explain to him the minority's problem. He is still too young for that. I can see, though, that I will have to do it. Wow. Yeah, I think a, a really challenging yeah. question mm -hmm. to answer. And mm -hmm. I was very much aware as I was researching this podcast, that it was something I couldn't truly grasp with those cultures and those identities. I mean, I, I feel I can relate in a similar way and having Native American blood, and I also have some Czech yeah. blood and some Spanish, and often I do feel at a loss. I, I would like to claim uh -huh. a cultural identity, uh -huh. and I am all those things, and yet somehow feel like none of them. Right, same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I could see how in that political atmosphere uh -huh. as well uh -huh. uh, just how uh -huh. challenging of a uh -huh. discussion of a conversation yep. that yep, was for sure. then again this issue of identity came up in later letters um, so this is regarding speaking german versus czech in public recently an acquaintance of mine who was speaking really discreetly german was accosted most viciously and insulted by a gentleman of higher standing are you still speaking german you stinking jews etc the next day, my sister-in-law, who was speaking Czech while crossing the street with my mother-in-law, was accosted again for that reason. Now you can suddenly speak Czech? So obviously quite a charged, yeah. a charged issue. And I can't imagine what it would have been like to live at a time where you can't be one you can't or, win. Yeah. Uh, or yeah. the other. Yeah, yeah, there's absolutely no winning. Yeah. And the stakes were just so high, right? Mm -hmm. As the world became more and more embroiled in turmoil and conflict, her letters too became heavy. She recounted a story of a friend of hers who was poor. This friend hardly even had enough to have any bread to eat, but was spat on for being Jewish. And she ended up questioning God, and she asked, how can God, if there is a God, just look on? I think any rational person would be wondering those, that sort of thing. It's the eternal question still. Right? Still. Yes. It comes up 
constantly. Sometimes there are breaks in her letters. There are breaks in the heaviness for a bit of levity. She wrote this silly anecdote about reading on the radio. Because remember, as all of this conflict ha was happening, she was producing plays and doing readings and translations. She would translate poems and then she would read them on the radio. So um, this <laughs> cute little anecdote. Okay, so she's writing to Lillian here. I love to read on the radio. You neither see nor hear the auditorium and you can imagine the size of the audience as you like. Last time it was funny. I had a bit of a cold and had put my handbag with my handkerchief next to me on the lectern. After the first words, I felt my nose growing runny. I groped without raising my eyes for the handkerchief. Nothing. <laughs> well, I go on reading, astonished, I keep searching. <laughs> Nothing at all. A little drop is forming on the tip of my nose. I possess nothing to wipe it off because the announcer, out of sheer fear I could make noise with it, had cleared away the handbag. <laughs> Without looking around, I am making signs for him, which he does not understand. Eventually, I found myself forced to revert to the proven method of our forefathers and dispose of that business with the hand. <laughs> I wasn't too happy about it. <laughs> I just love that she takes the time yeah, to describe yeah, that yeah, little story. Yeah. It's so cute. Oh, and then later, when realizing her new typewriter did not have exclamation marks, she had to explain how many she would use after a sentence <laughs> to convey her excitement. Oh, so she funny. would say, she would type out, I, write, I would write three exclamation right, marks right, after right, this right, if I could. Right. <laughs> These little glimpses into her humor and wit are truly delightful. And I can only imagine how both beautiful and heartrending it would have been for Hanush to come to know this part of his mother four decades after her death. In 1936, she first starts writing about encountering opposition to her own personal work. Uh, again, in a letter to Lillian, she writes, Recently, it appears as if I have a hidden enemy at the radio who, although my material has been accepted, knows how to prevent it from being broadcast. I really feel that I hardly have any more income opportunities. Anti-Semitism is shutting all doors on me. You see this as more and more of her, right? I'm just taking like little, little tiny excerpts, but she writes more and more about it and it becomes impossible for her to continue. She was aware that her literary career was most likely over by April of 1938. She writes, my physical and mental state is wretched. I had a disgusting experience during my last radio lecture. It might have really been the last one, which proved that the Nazis are already at the helm. My literary career has likely ended. Ilsa writes about friends who won't even look her in the eye, and the sense of betrayal in her letters is devastating. She sees people wearing swastikas on, quote, chests under which no German heart beats. But obviously, I mean, in that environment, I think the self-preservation that everyone was functioning under just created such a hostile environment but i think it also probably brought out people's you know base instincts well and i i think she was particularly perplexed by those people who were not particularly german but were somehow mm -hmm. like the the in-between kind of people mm -hmm. she wrote about one whose son she had Basically, say he was running absolutely wild, right? And she stepped in and helped this mother like learn how to corral her child, and and the mother was so thankful and had promised her like lifelong gratitude, and a year later won't even look at her in the eye. Right, and but also I just realized it was difficult for everybody, and, and it would have mm -hmm. taken 
And again, with increasing repercussions and increasing, you know, perhaps brutality, it was literally a a life-threatening situation to, to be to be helpful or to be even in right. contact with Jewish people. So, so like, I can't judge, you know, right, I mean, it's right. easy to and tempting, mm. but. <sighs> yeah, I think, you know, as I was reading through all of this, there's not necessarily any judgment. It's more um, a sort of understanding right. and empathy for what Ilsa was experiencing. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure if those other people had letters that of theirs that we could read, right. we would also right. see. Right. Um, but, you know, she did also write a few times about people who would stand up for her, but she almost felt equally bad about that, that yeah, people would yeah, yeah. feel the need to yeah. walk next to her and that yeah. it, she just... It was so difficult. And I wouldn't say you were being judgmental. I just caught myself in my head right. being oh, like, right, oh, right, those right. people were just, they should have done A, B, C, D. But then I stopped myself and was like, what would I do? Mm-hmm. You know, if, you know, you have your own family, your own life, your own existence to, pre- you don't know. You don't right. know what yeah. you would do. We, it's like, it's easy to judge potentially from, yeah. you know, your couch. I think, but, I think it's absolutely impossible to truly understand because we weren't we weren't there yeah and Mm. i think the people who did actually risk their lives to Mm. save the jews are just were just incredibly courageous and some of them did to lose their lives for Mm. it and i i can't say that i would be able to do it right right. i'll be honest with you i don't know well and we'll hear a little bit about um one of those particular stories uh in a bit so in this atmosphere, it became increasingly difficult for Vili to run his business, and eventually, all business dried up entirely. To add to the difficulty, all their money was frozen. Jews could neither receive nor send money, and therefore, they could not travel. She resorted to speaking in code in her letters any time the sending and receiving of funds was attempted. They applied for purchasing a little estate in Palestine. It would have been a small house with a field and a garden and chickens, but their application was denied. The desperation to escape was so apparent as the letters progressed. Ilsa desperately wanted to send her oldest son to Lillian, but for a while, Vili would not allow it, saying that there were other people who were, much, who were in much more dire circumstances than they. Eventually, though, it became obvious that they needed to spare Hanush, the trauma of Jewish life such as it had become, and they were able to secure him a spot on a kinder transport coordinated by the heroic efforts of Nicholas Nicholas George Winton. Winton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, So you know Mm -hmm. about Winton. I was kind of reminded of the whole Schindler, Mm -hmm. like Schindler's Mm -hmm. List situation. But we didn't, again, I wonder why we never learned about this in school, and I wonder it's because they went to England, and England was, you know, the imperialist enemy, whatever. But because but it became a huge story after after 89, like right. yeah, there's oh, okay, movies yeah. about him and yeah. he he visited often. And, right. then, you know, then there would be these gatherings of his his children, right. children. Right. I mean, it's yeah. it's a tremendous story. Yeah. yeah. And, and he was just a stockbroker. Yep. Yep. He was just a stockbroker and decided I yep. have to do something. Yep. And then yep. he went to Prague yep. and was able to coordinate yep. these efforts. Yep. Yep. And I forget why there was a specific reason why. I, only England would accept these children, but he he arranged the um, for the passage of yeah. six hundred and sixty nine, mm-hmm. and uh, Hanush was one of these yeah. children. Oh wow! Oh okay. Yeah, and the reason why they did not send Tommy, the younger boy, was because Tommy was always sick. Mm. So she. Um, Lillian and Ilsa had arranged it so Hanush would end up in England, and I believe Lillian and her. English husband were in England okay 
And so even though Lillian was from, originally from Sweden, so Ilsa was sending Hanush there. That's how they were able mm-hmm. to arrange it because mm-hmm. they, had, they had that right, connection. Right, right. Um, and she just didn't want to burden Lillian with sending Tommy, mm-hmm. who was quite ill. Mm-hmm. I, I think if she knew what was going to happen, mm-hmm. she would have sent mm-hmm. him anyway, right? right? Um, I mean, I'm sure there were so many things she would have done differently, yeah. but she just couldn't burden someone else with that. Mm-hmm. And also, she was scared because there are many times where uh, Tommy just got so, so, so sick. Right. Um, right. So Hanush ended up um, making that transport. Mm-hmm. And Lillian received him with open arms. However, they soon fell into a bit of misfortune as well. So she took Hanush and her own daughter to Sweden to spend the summer there. I think that that was a thing that they regularly did. But the summer storms uh, there meant that they had to postpone their trip back to England. They just simply couldn't make the trip back. And then when they did have a flight booked back, it was in April of 1940. But the evening before the flight, there were raids on um, Norway. So flying to England was entirely out of the question. So Lillian decided, much to Ilsa's horror, to leave the children with Lillian's mother in Sweden. And Lillian attempted to make it back by boat to her husband in England. Lillian's boat ended up spending six months at sea, however, simply trying to avoid being struck and sunk by German submarines. When she did make it back to England, she volunteered to be a part of a, de- of a national defense organization, But ever since the long sea voyage, she had been in very ill health and spending long nights in an ice-cold watchtower as part of the defense organization eventually led to a terrible case of pleurisy and her untimely death from complications after surgery. Ilsa, as you can imagine, was devastated by her friend's death and was extremely anxious about what would happen to Hanush. But thankfully... Lillian's mother, Gertrude, took the boy in, and so she took up regularly writing to Gertrude, who she called Aunt Gertrude in her letters. Eventually, due to worsening conditions, Vili, Ilsa, and Tommy left Vitkovica and moved to Prague. Gertrude received this ominous message in March of 1942. The Royal Foreign Office is honored to bring to your knowledge the content of a letter received from the Swedish consulate in Prague. Frau Ilse Weber requested me to inform her son, Hanush Weber, who is with Frau Leuvenadler, that she is being evacuated these days. Frau Weber was unable to leave a new address. And then three months later, this arrived. Now, keep in mind, Ilse had written, like, relentlessly, right, this, during this entire time. And then suddenly, there's just these vast expanses of nothing. And in, so this is June of 1942. With, pre- with reference to previous correspondence regarding Frau Ilse Weber, I am thereby informing Frau Leuvenadler, who fosters Frau Weber's son, that Frau Weber is still in Theresienstadt. Then another six months passed before Ilse was finally able to, quote-unquote, write from Theresienstadt. She writes, My dearest ones, for the turn of the year, we are wishing you all the best and sending the birthday child special heartfelt wishes. We are all healthy and looking forward to receiving news from you soon. All sorts of mail are allowed. So let's talk a little bit about Theresienstadt. So you are going to know much more about it than I, but just so our listeners, for anyone who doesn't know, because I actually, the only um, concentration camp that I've been to is Dachau. Okay. I've never been to any other one. And that was was a really intense day. Um, But Theresienstadt, 
Uh, this ghetto was like a concentration camp in many ways, right? The yes. men and the women were separated into different housing. So Ilsa and her, vi- and her husband were not able to live together. There was also separate housing for the children and, children. and while parents were not required to send their children there, many of them willingly did mm-hmm. because they were fed better than in mm-hmm. other places exactly. in the ghetto. Yeah. Communication with the outside world was greatly restricted. Most of the time, only standardized postcards with a limited number of words were approved. And sometimes they were like pre-typed out and you would just send out to your family and it would say, we love it here. You know, things along the lines of great health, everything's so beautiful, ideal place, which was absolute BS. All ghetto prisoners from 15 to 65 were required to work. Conditions were overcrowded with disease running rampant. Medicine was not allowed to be used for Jewish people. Many elderly citizens and war veterans were sent to the ghetto, though there was no room for them. They were crammed into attics and walls and dark cellars. Consequently, many died of exhaustion or simply a lack of desire to live. And it seems that this was the point. People were being crowded in with very little to to sustain them, with the intention that most of them would die. Vili Weber reported that 150,000 people were living in places where previously only 4,000 people lived. The food, if you could call it that, was terrible. Breakfast was usually some kind of black brew. Lunch was usually rotten potatoes. And another unidentifiable brew was all there was for dinner. 30,000 people died of starvation. There were transports that arrived daily from many countries, bringing more and more people. But even worse than the arriving transports were the departing transports. They didn't know where they were going, only that the transports headed east, and there was a distinct and palpable terror of ending up on a transport list headed east. Do you have anything that you might want to add from what you well, witnessed? Um, well, so it's not far from Prague. You can just be there, you know, hop on mm-hmm. a bus in Prague. You're there in 45 minutes. It's a very quiet town right now. And I think it actually started, they did provide like some housing, mm-hmm. very cramped quarters for, for Jewish families, like for and initially when, right. when they first started, you know, sort of deporting them. Uh, uh, so it wasn't as horrible at first, but then, but then, uh, you know, it was as you described, but when you're there, it's, there's like a, you know, town center and some like houses and then it's sort of spread around, but you see that there's the small fortress. That's the most infamous one with where they lived. And you can also visit the crema. I think they call the crematorium. Basically you see the, um, ovens. It's not a big place. Mm -hmm. So it's and, and there are like green meadows around it. There's mm-hmm. a cemetery, um, and there was almost nobody there. So yeah. it was very interesting to just why I was there with my sister and a friend of mine who is a playwright. She lives in Seattle and she writes mm. uh, sort of educational plays, and she's mm-hmm. Jewish too. So it was you know super meaningful right, to right. her as well. Um, there are of course videos that they show you, and and yeah. um, but I just remembered, and it was it just killed me. There's a postcard in Prague. There's a Jewish museum in Prague, which is housed in many synagogues and former synagogues, and there's one that's that's uh, focuses on Terezin a lot. And there's a postcard that says, you know, hi, dear ones, mm-hmm. I'm fine. Uh, you know, please send some sweats. You know, I get, mm. you know, da 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 da. And then underneath it says, you know, that person was already dead by the time, Oof, you know, this was yeah. even sent, that postcard. Just, oh, 
So yeah, so there's a there's a lot of tangible you know bits and pieces yeah. in Prague and, and but yeah, like you said, it was it was it was a way station for Auschwitz. Right. Yeah, I did read. I remember reading that um, you know they eventually the crowding was just so mm-hmm. intense because mm-hmm. they were transporting. It was a stopping point, right? right? And they would just crowd everyone in before right. sending them on transports. And the thing was that was that according to the outside world, they were telling people that this wasn't, this was, this was the stop. This was the final place for these people when in fact they were being sent to, to the the extermination camps. But they also, you know, they tried to pretend that this is some kind of lovely place where, because there's a documentary they show you where they staged this soccer game. Yes. I have a little bit about this. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me um, tell our listeners a little bit about that aspect of, and, so it's called Terezin. That's mm-hmm. the Czech name mm-hmm. for it. And the German name, Theresienstadt, is that used for it at all? No, or is not in Czech. Ter- no. Terezin. Terezin. Yeah. So maybe I should refer to it as Terezin. Oh, no, I think, I think in, uh, you know, outside the Czech-speaking right. world, it's Terezin, known as Terezinstadt. Terezin. Oh, I'm saying it wrong. Terezinstadt, I think. Terezinstadt. Terezin. Oh, yeah, I was saying Terezin. Or Terezinstadt, something like that. Terezin what, whatever German no, you're fine. You're fine. But that's whenever question. it's referred to, like in any that 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 I heard, yeah. you know, by non-Czech speak speakers, it's Terezinstadt is is like the sort of official. In 1943, the Nazis decided to use Terezin as mm-hmm. a propaganda tool. The Red Cross was coming to visit. I think that they had heard these rumors of really terrible things happening there, that the conditions were absolutely absolutely abominable, and that it was just a way station on the mm-hmm. way to the the extermination camps. Um, so they were going to check it out. Um, the SS, when they realized this was going to happen, they established a fake town in order to fool the world into believing that the model Jewish ghetto was an ideal setting place, settling place. Mm-hmm. So they built fake businesses, a fake bank, printed ghetto money, and put on cultural performances, like even more performances than there would actually be in a regular town in regular mm-hmm. life. Um, And then they installed like a fake mayor, right? And they beat the mayor before forcing him to ride around in a limo all day and be the face of the town during the delegation's visit. And during that time, a propaganda film was even recorded to show the world what a model Jewish city would look like. The whole thing was such a despicable farce. And before the visitors arrived, tens of thousands of Jews were sent to extermination camps to relieve the overcrowding which was the very thing the Red Cross was trying to ensure was not happening. So the Webers were sent to Terezin in 1942. Vili wrote later that though Ilsa was a disaster during their time in Prague, because they lived in Prague for a little while before they were sent there, so once she was actually in the Terezin ghetto, she was transformed. She became emboldened and fixated on, on assisting in whatever way she could. He said she was strong and confident and overcame difficulties with ease. Now, from what I read, I don't think any part of this was easy. But I think that with a purpose, this woman was single-minded in mm-hmm. her determination to make a difference and help those she could. Ilsa established a children's infirmary and immediately began making massive improvements. She worked tirelessly, sometimes from before the sun went up until long after the sun went down. At first, she was given only eight broken beds, but this she eventually expanded to 26. 
There was no equipment, no linens, no supplies, but she quickly scrounged whatever she could uh, to make the place one of support and comfort for the children. And she was even able to find an artist who was able to paint like fairy tale scenes on the walls. Um, and I just, it's so touching to me that her, her love of fairy tales, she, would able, she was able to incorporate this in this mm-hmm. terrible place where these despicable things are happening. Um, one survivor, Ruth Elias, later wrote about meeting Ilsa in Terezin. She said that Ilsa's indescribable sense of duty for her family and patients never let her rest. She even noted that Ilsa was somehow able to have a pristine white apron in spite of there being no hot water or soap anywhere in the ghetto. (laughs) Right? (laughs) In one of her more daring feats, Ilsa even brought music into the ghetto. Um, this This was written by her husband, Vili. She also succeeded, despite a prohibition, to organize a guitar, and that was really the most important treatment. At her infirmary, against all regulations, songs were sung and music was played from early morning until evening. I believe that Terezin was also the peak of Ilse's career as a writer. With simple words, she recorded our life and experience in poetic form, which over time has become common property of thousands of people. Her Terezin folk songs were sung by the children with increasing enthusiasm. Almost every evening, after 12 working hours, Ilsa went to visit a variety of infirmaries, barracks, etc. With notes and her guitar and with her songs and poems, she gave people new hope for a better tomorrow. It was so brave of her to have that guitar because if she had been found, right, if her little room had been searched, she would have immediately been put on an east transport. There just would have been no question. Yep. The consequences for her having that guitar, for singing, it was death. Mm-hmm. And she was so brave. Ruth Elias wrote that Ilsa engaged her Terezin children the whole day with music, singing, and playing. She helped the children write poems and songs and little plays, and everyone around her considered it a kind of therapy. If she had any free time at all, she would use it to write. Ruth wrote that Ilsa's clear and simple language reproduced the camp's life and suffering. I'm going to read this little, um, it's like a nursery rhyme. Um, that she wrote, and and then the the paragraph following it is from the um, forward to Dancing on a Powder Keg. So here's her little nursery rhyme. Rira, rira, earth, we're riding in the hearse. Rira, rira, earth, we're riding in the hearse. We stand there, we stand here, riding fast, cold corpses near. Rira, earth, we're riding in the hearse. So um, the paragraph following that says, the incongruity between playful form and agonizing content echoes the paradoxes inherent in the camp and ghetto's life, where elementary forms of human activity gain new meaning in extremity. Where helping the weak, taken for granted in normal times, is an exception that verges on the heroic, and where children playing with corpses is an everyday sight. It's kind of like what you were saying earlier about, you know, helping people just being an ap- a life and death matter. Mm-hmm. Ilsa wrote approximately 60 poems while she was a prisoner and set many of them to music. Her melodies are often very simple, a strange juxtaposition considering their horrifying content. When Ilsa sang her poems to melodies that she composed, she often accompanied herself on the guitar. Uh, This is Ruth Elias writing. It may sound paradoxical, 
but we spent unforgettable hours in Ilse's Kumbalek, which I guess is her Kumbalek. Little... Yeah. Kumbalek. <laughs> yeah, it's a tiny, it's a tiny, tiny room. Right. Tiny, she had like often this... windowless. Yeah. Yeah. She yeah. had this just little tiny yeah. space that yeah. she was allotted yeah. that she had um, tried to make as homey oh, and comfortable funny. as yeah. possible. Yeah. So uh, she said we spent unforgettable hours in Ilse's Kumbalek, during which she sang songs with the lute. Ilsa was not only a poet, but also an excellent musician who set to music some of her poems herself. I found it incomprehensible how she managed during this terrible time to see so much ugliness, but sometimes also beauty, and describe it so expressively in her verses. An almost complete image of the ghetto life emerged in this way. When Ilsa wrote poems, she read them to us or sang them with the lute, and so I became witness to her creation. Many of her verses originated at first, not on paper, but while she was improvising with the lute. To her son, Hanush, she wrote a letter that she was not allowed to send. And as she read it to us, it touched us so much that we all had to cry. Ilse Weber spoke often of Hanush and how much she pined for him. She often doubted whether she acted rightly to have robbed this child of motherly love and sent him to strangers. At the same time, she was happy to have saved him from the privations and humiliations of the ghetto life. Ilsa literally threw herself into her work with the sick children because in each child she saw her own son, her Hanush. So let's listen to one of her songs right now, and in it you'll hear a message to her son. Um, this song is Der Regen Rint. Uh, something to note is that many of these melodies were passed on by ear. So people who heard them in the ghetto and survived later wrote the melodies down. Sometimes she was able to write like a few notes on the poem itself that would hint at how the music was to go. Um, and into the recording that you're about to hear, actually all the recordings today, um, they're Ilse's melodies, but the accompaniments are piano accompaniments that were realized by someone entirely differently. So these accompaniments are realized by Winfried Radeke. Hmm. And um, you're going to be hearing Naomi Mirror singing. And of course, I am playing. Uh, oh, the translation for the poem, the English oh. translation for the poem um, goes thusly. <laughs> and the rain pours and the rain pours. I think in the dark of you, my child, high are the mountains and deep is the sea. My heart is tired and heavy with longing, and the rain pours, and the rain pours. Why are you so far, my child? And the rain pours, and the rain pours. God himself has separated us, my child. You should not suffering and misery see, should not walk on stony streets, and the rain pours, and the rain pours. Have you not forgotten me, my child? Let's take a listen. Und der Regen rinnt, und der Regen rinnt. Ich denk im Dunkeln an dich, mein Kind. Hoch sind die Berge und tief ist das Meer. Mein Herz ist müd und sehnsuchtsschwer. Und der Thank you. 
right yes yeah simple Gorgeous. yeah so. yeah and it has that element of folk song and that it's just verses mm-hmm. you know one after the other very simple a very singable melody mm-hmm. a very memorable mm-hmm. melody it is it really is yes yeah, really mm-hmm. catchy if you can say that yeah <laughs> right yeah but i mean thankfully because now we, we right, have right. so many yeah, of these beautiful. these melodies yeah. i can't stress enough how important ilsa's poetry and music were in the camp conditions, poetry and literature were not simply artistic fulfillment, they were acts of resistance. In 1944, Vili received word that he was going to be sent on an East transport of 5,000 men to Auschwitz. Before he left, he begged Ilsa to promise him that she would not sign up for a similar transport. Before he left, he took 60 of her poems, put them in a sack, dug a hole under the garden shed that he had access to as the, the ghetto gardener, and he buried the poems in the hole and then covered them with some clay so it, it wouldn't look disturbed, it wouldn't look suspicious. Wow. Willi arrived in Auschwitz and immediately was sent to work at Gleiwitz, and his story is remarkable. When the SS realized that the Red Army was approaching, they sent uh, the prisoners on a death march to the German border. Willi was extremely ill and knew that the SS were killing anyone who could not march, who could not make the journey. So his friend hid him under a pile of rotten tomatoes. And I think that's supposed to say potatoes, but I actually accidentally typed tomatoes. I don't know. It doesn't matter. A pile of rotten food. Rotten, yeah. Yeah. And as soon as he heard that no one was around, he made his break out of the rotten food. He took his time eating from fields and scrounged whatever food he could from deserted towns, trying to build up his strength for a return journey to Terezin. He wandered through wooded areas for weeks until he happened to encounter a Czech army. This Czech army company also just happened to have his brother Sigmund within its ranks. Isn't that wild? Oh my gosh. He stayed with his company until they reached a liberated Prague. When he arrived, Terezin was under quarantine because of a typhus epidemic. So after it was liberated, they actually had to put it under quarantine because this uh, typhus epidemic had broken out. However, Vili was friends with a major who was able to accompany him into the ghetto where he found the hidden sack of poems right where he had buried them. And together, they smuggled the poems out under the major's uniforms. After this, Vili searched in vain for Ilsa and Tommy. At one point, he met a nurse who reported, Ilsa went to Auschwitz. She said the entire children's infirmary was put on a transport, and rather than abandon them, Ilsa voluntarily registered for the transport in order to accompany the sick children to Auschwitz. Willi did not want to believe this, however, and continued his search for Ilsa and Tommy. Eventually, he declared them dead at the end of 1946, but from other people's accounts, it seems that he never really gave up hope that one day he would find them, that somehow they would be there. Years later, Hanush met a friend from Ostrava, and the friend had this to say. 
I was in Terezin together with your parents, but I was deported to Auschwitz with an earlier transport than your father. In autumn 1945, I came back to Prague, and one of the first people I met was Willie. He asked me how I succeeded to survive. As I told him that I had been in Auschwitz for a long time, I was sent on a death march, your father asked me if I had not seen Ilsa and Tommy. My answer was no, and I have regretted this every day until today. Vili also always hoped that Ilsa and Tommy were still alive, and I did not have the heart to destroy his hopes, but I knew exactly what had happened. When we arrived in Auschwitz, we underwent a selection, and most of my fellow inmates from Terezin were sent directly to the gas chamber. I was a good athlete and still had some muscles, so I was transferred to the group classified as fit for work. My work was dreadful. I ended up in the corpse carrier commando a group of inmates who pulled out the corpses from the gas chambers and transported them to the crematorium. I wanted to survive, but now I believe that the price for it was too high. I feel that I survived at the expense of the dead. The most terrible moments were those when I recognized my old friends who were standing in line outside the gas chamber. Sometime in autumn 1944, I noticed a group of 10 or 15 children that had arrived with the transport. Ilsa stood in their middle trying to comfort the little ones. Next to her stood a boy who was bigger than the rest of the children. I think that this big boy was Tommy, but I am not sure. We were not allowed under any circumstances to make contact with those who were waiting outside the gas chamber. But as the nearest guardsmen were positioned quite far away, I went over to Ilsa, who immediately recognized me. Is it true that we can take a shower after the journey? she asked. I did not want to lie, and so I answered, No, that is no shower room. It is a gas chamber, and I will give you a piece of advice now. I have often heard you singing in the infirmary. Go as quickly as possible into the chamber. Sit with the children on the floor and start singing. Sing what you always sing with them. That way you, in you will inhale the gas quicker. Otherwise you would be trampled to death when panic breaks out. Ilsa's reaction was strange. She laughed, somehow absently, hugged one of the children and said, So we will not be taking a shower. You can imagine Ilsa gathering the children and bravely doing what was best for them. Perhaps she sang something that went a little bit like this. The night creeps over the ghetto, so black and silent. Go to sleep, my child. Forget everything around you. Snuggle your little head in my arms. With mother, it is nice and warm. Sleep. Overnight can many things happen. Overnight can all sorrows go away. My child, you will see when you awaken, peace will have come overnight.
Just picture the scene, even if you don't want to. I think it's also incredible that that friend saw her. Mm-hmm. And we have an accounting mm-hmm. for how she was. And she was there with the children. And I just, I know. you know she was brave for the children. You mm-hmm. know she watched out mm-hmm. to them until the end. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because you were telling me um, while we took a bit of a break, you mm-hmm. were showing me the letter. So your, mm-hmm. your grandmother was mm-hmm. in Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And you showed me the the her yeah. letter. Well, I this was like an official mm-hmm. sort of certificate that like you know prisoners such mm-hmm. and such arrived to mm-hmm. some some town in I think Eastern Bohemia in May forty five. But like the whole story, which I only really learned in detail this summer, because mm-hmm. my aunt has these documents that sh- which for some reason it would anyway she showed them to us, mm-hmm. and that's my mom's sister, and. Uh, there's a handwritten account that my grandma wrote down sometime in the 90s um, about the whole story. Mm-hmm. So she had several siblings and her, there was a blended family. There had been some siblings okay. from, I think, her father's previous marriage. So there were many children, big age range. And they lived in, you know, Western Ukraine, which was part of the Czech land somehow. And um, anyway, they lived okay in a shtetl, in a, mm-hmm. in a little Jewish village. And then when things started getting heated, they hid in some like brick factory or something in 44. Mm-hmm. All of them. And then from there, they got taken to Auschwitz after all. And my grandma and a bunch of her siblings did survive, mm. but not her parents. Mm. And not all of the siblings. And so my grandma's sister, who died just a few years ago, and she's buried in Prague at the Jewish Cemetery in Prague, on her headstone, it has her name, her husband's name, and then the names of all the people. Mm. And it literally says their names, and then it says murdered at Auschwitz. Got it. Wow. 
And one of them was a baby. One of oh. them was like two or one or something. Did your grandmother ever? No, I can't imagine never. that she. They never talked about it yeah. ever. Because my turns, my grand, my grandpa had uh, lost a wife and a baby in the war. He would marry. He'd been married mm-hmm. before, wow. and he fought in the in the Red Army. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. And he has an account that's also quite interesting. But I I knew nothing. Right. Growing. I knew that they had survived the war, but again, we were, I don't know if whether we, if we were brainwashed mm-hmm. or whether it was just the way history was explained to us, was that I knew that they were born like on, you know, what's now Soviet Union mm-hmm. and that, you know, the good Russians were put in camps by mm-hmm. the bad Nazis mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. two and two never clicked in my head Right. that that's why, you know, grandma might've been in a camp because we're Jewish because right. it was not a thing growing up in a right. socialist country. That's so wild. I know it's really pretty wild. Yeah. Well, and it's very interesting that element of never speak. I know that that was very, very yeah. common, and yeah. Yeah, that yeah. actually happened to um, Hanush mm. after. And Hanush wasn't even there mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. for the majority mm-hmm, yeah. of it. It, but it, it took him quite some time to process his mother's story. Yeah. And he did reunite with his father, right. with Vili, okay. after the war. Okay. Um, but they never talked right. openly about the horror and right. the atrocities right. that the family had right. endured. Right. Where did they meet? Was it in Prague where they reconnected? I or? think they reconnected in Prague, if I remember correctly. So actually, don't quote me on that. I can't remember specifically where they first reconnected, but I do know that then Hanush went to Prague and they got like a, an apartment together. And so they lived together for some time. Um, Vili, the father, he was open to talking about it and did want to talk about it with his son. Um, and he, you know, Vili wrote to the brothers and, and he was sharing sharing Ilsa's story and his story. But Hanush simply could, could not speak about it. Mm. Um, he eventually became a TV journalist and a filmmaker and ended up, this is so interesting, he ended up um, making a, he was going to make a film about the culture in concentration camps and realized, okay, the time has come. I need to discuss my parents' story with my father. Mm-hmm. And so as he was preparing for this interview that was going to be part of the film, um, he w- went to the airport to pick up his, his father was supposed to be coming in on a flight. He was literally at the airport going to pick up his father and he got a call saying that his father, Vili, had had a heart attack and died. And so he never got to hear the story from his father. So I I believe he probably read the letters like to the to the brothers and 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 all that. Um but he never got to hear from his father. So was he a Czech filmmaker or or where did he So he mostly in Sweden. Sweden, okay. okay, Yeah. Okay. He did do some work um in Prague because he was only a Swedish speaking Okay. person in Prague for a while. Okay, okay. So he did some translation oh, work, got it. right? Okay, um, okay. And then I believe, I don't know if Hanush is still alive. So, because he, he would be, what, he was born, what, 42-ish See, or something? he was born, no, Hanush no. was born in 31. Oh, 31, okay, uh-huh. so he'd be quite old. He'd be 90. very old. Um, but some of the things I, I read um, would say, oh, Hanush lives in, I think it's like Stockholm, right? Oh, okay. He okay. lives in okay. Sweden. Um, but I'm not sure if that's current. Right. I don't know if he's, right. if he's still He'd alive. be over 90 now. Yeah, yeah he yeah. would be. Right. Um, so remember that trunk of poems that yes. we started yes. all of this yes. off with, right? Hanush did not open it for 12 years. Oh. When he finally did, I'm sure an unspeakable grief overwhelmed him. Um, he did speak later about how he regretted how little he wrote to her when he was a boy. 
Ilse's desperation in her letters to hear some word from him. To, he, she was, you know, begging him to write. Why don't I hear from you? Why don't you write more mm-hmm. often? Um, it's just, it's gut-wrenching. I, I think on both sides, yeah. right? Over the years, many people reached out to Vili and then later to Hanush with their memories of, of Ilse's words, her melodies, and her presence in the ghetto. And while I'm sure that brought some comfort, I'm sure that she was missed most by those who loved her the most. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't have the words to sum up, you know, and in conclusion, <laughs> what would you say after an episode like this? I mean, we just need to keep telling the stories. Right. That's really, that's really what, you know, we're actually going to be singing a couple of weeks. Every year we do mm-hmm. a Holocaust Remembrance Day mm-hmm. concert. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sadly, but that's the nature of time, is that we would... Um, we sing a couple of songs that uh, that were sung in the camps mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so forth. And then there's also that a moment where we would call up Holocaust survivors mm-hmm. to light a candle and then children and then grandchildren. And of course, year by year, you know, there are fewer and fewer of the actual survivors. We still have a few, but not many. But I always go up there and, it, you know, I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. that I can do that, oh, yeah. you know, for my for my um, grandparents. But yeah. um, but so that's important. Just never forget. That's real. That's mm-hmm. literally what you know, Jewish people now say, like, never forget right, and never right, again. Right. Yeah. And again, it's interesting when you're making a podcast, which is like a form of entertainment, yeah. but at the same time can be educational in this right. way. I do truly enjoy this music. And I, and when I, I played it in concert, actually with Naomi, um, the soprano who's singing for us mm-hmm. today, um, she introduced me to Ilsa Weber and I'm, I'm so, so grateful and so grateful to have this platform and to be able to use it to tell yeah, Ilsa's yeah, story. Yeah. So I actually thought maybe we could end by listening just to one more of sure, her songs. Sure. Vigala, Vigala, Vire. The wind plays the lyre. It plays so sweet in green reed. The nightingale sings her song. Vigala, Vigala, Vire. The wind plays the lyre. Vigala, Vigala, Verna. The moon is the lantern. It stands in the dark heavens and looks down on the world. Vigala, Vigala, Verna, the moon is the lantern. Vigala, Vigala, Villa, how is the world so quiet? Not a sound disturbs the sweet rest. Sleep, my little child, you can sleep too. Vigala, Vigala, Villa, how is the world so quiet?
it's beautiful sweet yeah all, all of them are. a little bit yeah, yeah, it, yeah it really is we um we did a few more of her little folk songs um in the recital the live recital that we did but we've only um recorded for the podcast these three these were the three that really kind of mm-hmm. oof, reached into my mm-hmm. <laughs> soul and mm-hmm. and i wanted to share them with you and with our yeah, listeners yeah, so yeah. camilla i think we did it we i think did. we're done well, um i just i can't thank you enough for oh, being please, here and i also can't believe what a perfect person i know know. and especially this summer because i learned so much more about my own family and like having i can't believe i'd never gone to terezin before but i i went and it was actually a super meaningful i'm glad my sister could be there with me and my friend rachel and uh yeah just all of it all of it you know yeah, and I grew up with grandma and grandpa. They were, right. you know, they we lived in the same town. They were huge, a huge part of my life. They were such nice people, but they were sort of the classic Holocaust survivor. You know, mm. like there was always food in the house. They all right. made sure we, you know, it was like, are you are you good? Are you fed? Are you healthy? Are you, you know, how are you doing? And that that's all they kind of mm-hmm. that that's all they needed to be right. happy. Right. You know, right. they were surrounded by family. They had a bunch of grandkids and. Uh, mm. And they never talked about the atrocities that they both endured, which kind of blows the mind also. Well, I am so grateful for you for sharing. I'm, I'm glad that yeah. like, we've had this yeah. space to, to honor their yeah. experience, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, to celebrate the family that they, they have and celebrate you. Thank you so much. And look at me now singing <laughs> in the you know synagogue choir. Know, like They would be you know? curious what they would think about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but thank you also, yeah. like because I'd never heard of her. Yeah, I don't right. think. No. Well, I'll send you some more of her recordings. It's really interesting because, um, you know, the, the melodies were really communicated mostly just from people who had heard them. And there are various arrangements, mm-hmm. so many different mm-hmm. versions out there. You can go on YouTube. I'll send you a couple of interesting sure. ones that I found. And I'll also incor- uh, include a couple of links to some other, um, you know, arrangements um, that have been made of her melodies in the show notes. Listeners, thank you so much for being here today and joining us to hear the amazing story of Ilsa Weber. And if you haven't had enough of Ilsa Weber's music in your life, then you might want to try singing her songs with me. You can find my accompaniments on YouTube. I'm there as Mandy Madrid Sigich. Just click on the Leader Accompaniment playlist and start singing. And remember that Follow the Leader can be found in all the usual podcasty places. And please, if you like what you hear, leave a review. It is truly the best way you can support the podcast. I have to swallow my spit. <laughs> I have swallowed in like 20 minutes. <laughs> Follow the Leader is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org forward slash podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at leadernerd. That's at L-I-E-D-E-R-N-E-R-D. See you later, nerds. <laughs> we did it.
If you love this podcast, then you'll love the Song Cycle podcast, also by Cincinnati Song Initiative. Song Cycle introduces the coolest and awesomest leaders of the song world today and dives into getting to know them and their unique stories, where they think song in the 21st century is headed, and lots of other great topics. If you're looking for your next source of inspiration as you continue on your own musical journey as a song lover, look no further than Song Cycle with me, your host, Sam Martin. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the conversation.